The first time it happened, they were absolutely terrified. There they were, in a room, doors locked, and suddenly there was Jesus standing among them. And he said, peace be with you. And his gospel, Luke records that peace wasn't exactly the first emotion that sprang to mind. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Only when they heard the voice of Jesus, touched his body, and even watched him eat a piece of fish, did they really begin to believe their eyes. That the one they had seen nailed to a cross laid in a tomb, really was raised bodily from the dead. After that, the element of fear was gone. But not surprise. When and where would he next appear? On a road? By a lake? In the city? In the countryside? In the home? Maybe this kind of thing would happen indefinitely. But as we saw in our last study at the end of Luke's Gospel, this was not to be. And as we turn today to the sequel, where Luke picks up the story he left off at the end of his Gospel, we see the same thing again. And in this story... In these opening verses, Luke gives us some more details about the period between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. Uh, And one of the new details we learn is that the period between those two events lasted for 40 days. Uh, So today, as we begin our our new series in Acts, which, as we explained to the children, uh, we've called the Spreading Flame, I want to focus this morning on these opening verses under the title, 40 Days with Jesus. Now, you'll know this is not a very original title. If you were here with us two years ago, we did a course called 40 Days of Purpose, in which we helpfully focused on five main purposes that God has for every church and for every Christian. But as Luke begins his second volume... And probably the reason there are two volumes is that scrolls in those days were a certain length, and Luke and Acts are almost exactly the same length, so he probably turned to a second scroll with his second volume, although maybe he picked it up later on and thought, this went really well, I'll write a sequel, we're not absolutely sure. Um, As he writes this second volume, also to this man called Theophilus, we know nothing else about him, we see that these final 40 days are days of purpose. And what I want you to look at this morning, because we've looked at these verses in all sorts of different ways uh, in past days, uh, I really want you to just focus by way of introduction this morning on why these 40 days? Why didn't Jesus, as soon as it appeared to everyone, just go back to heaven? Oh, just imagine. Why didn't he just keep on appearing indefinitely? You imagine it, well, I just was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, just imagine, here we are in Charlotte Chapel, and what would it be like if Jesus just suddenly appeared among us? Wow, that would raise the level of expectation, wouldn't it? 
why did he go back to heaven? What was the purpose of these 40 days? Now, we're going to see later on why Jesus said it was so important for him to go back to heaven. But, but today I want to focus on why these 40 days. Uh, and I simply want to highlight from these opening verses three main purposes for the 40 days that Jesus spent with his followers because they're very important for the foundation of what lie, lay ahead for them and for us even 2,000 years on. Okay, here's the first reason that we find in these verses. If you've got your Bibles open at Acts 1, uh, verses 1 to 11, it's page 1092. It should come up on the screen, David. I'm not sure where we are here. That's good. There we are. If you can turn in your Bibles and look with me at these three purposes, all right? Here's the first purpose that I see in these verses, which is very clear, I think. The first reason was confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. Luke claims that during this period, Jesus gave his followers conclusive evidence that he had risen from the dead. Look at verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. In other words, the inference is from time to time, he appeared to them over 40 days cumulative evidence that he was risen from the dead. So, what was it that made these proofs so convincing? Or, the old authorised version translates it, infallible proofs. Well, let me suggest two kinds of proof. Okay, the first is, the nature of the resurrection body of Jesus. Uh, as we saw at the end of Luke's Gospel, the first time Jesus appeared, his followers were absolutely terrified, and the first thing that came to their minds was, it's a ghost. It took evidence from four of the senses to convince them that Jesus really was risen bodily from the dead. First of all, of hearing, Jesus said to them, Why are you trouble? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Of sight, he said, Look at my hands and my feet, it's I myself. Of touch, he said, Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, as you see I have. And even of taste, not theirs, but his of course. Do you have anything here to eat, he said. And they brought him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. You see, the risen Lord Jesus Christ was not a ghost, but flesh and blood, in a body more real than any other human body. Better, more powerful, so that he could pass somehow through solid walls and locked doors, and appear and reappear at will. Uh, later on in one of the first letters written in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, who of course came from a Greek background. The Greeks believed that the body was intrinsically evil, and they believed in the immortality of the soul, that when you died, you were some kind of ethereal being, and the body was something evil to be, to be sloughed off, you know, at the end of life. And Paul says, oh, oh, no, he said, Christ was raised bodily from the dead, and we shall write, if you are in, trusting in Christ, if you belong to him, he's the first fruits, you're going to be raised with the same kind of body that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. Now I tell you something, friends, as I get older, I can't wait. Because your body begins to wear out, doesn't it? Hearing aids, glasses. Can't run the way you used to, you know. Football match, you can only manage the last ten minutes. Significant, but only ten. We'll have a body like Jesus in all its perfection and glory. You'll be in your prime with a resurrection body. 
So the nature of the resurrection body of Jesus, when they realised it was real flesh and blood Jesus, was compelling evidence that convinced them he'd risen bodily from the dead. Now, linked in with this is a second kind of proof, the number of the resurrection appearances. Uh, We know that when the women who were the first to find the empty tomb and the first to encounter Jesus came back and told the apostles they'd met with Jesus, they didn't believe them. They were confused to say the least, sceptical. But once the number of appearances began to increase to different people in different places, the evidence grew more and more and became compelling. In total, if you look at all the gospel accounts and the the accounts in the New Testament, there are listed at least ten different resurrection appearances of Jesus. And there are probably a lot more that aren't listed here. Um, Again, in that letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds them of the basis of the gospel, what it is that we believe and why we believe it and why it's based on sure foundations. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you on which you've, you've received it and you've taken your stand on it. You've based your life upon it. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believe in vain. And then he says, this is what's been passed on to me. For what I received, I passed to you, unto you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and then he goes on to list eyewitness, eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And as he points out, most this is written some 20 years after the event. And the tradition it's based on is much, much closer than that. He points out that most of those 500 are still around. Some of them have died from the sleep. And they can back up his claims or blow them out of the water. Uh, so this is one of the main reasons why Jesus remained on earth for this 40-day period to appear again and again. So it wasn't just one person said, gosh, I saw something. I encountered something. Lots of people, lots of places. The cumulative evidence is there. Now, we are not eyewitnesses like they were. We have not seen the resurrection, the resurrected Christ face to face like they did. The 40 days are long past. But we do have reliable evidence from those who were eyewitnesses, who were and knew without a doubt that Jesus was dead and buried, but then raised to life. It transformed their lives. They were so convinced that they went out and they became witnesses of this fact. They didn't go around the world saying, we worship Jesus, he was a great hero, he died a martyr's death. And we think it's important that you know about that. They said, we worship Jesus who died on a cross, but we know that he was raised from the dead. They were so convinced about their witness that the word for witness in Greek became the word for a martyr. The word is the same word because many of them gave their lives because they were so convinced about this. Now, this is the foundation, the sure foundation for our faith. It's the foundation for all that follows in the book of Acts. It's the foundation of why we're here this morning. If you don't believe this, then you have no reason, in a sense, to go on believing in Christ. 
Because the Apostle Paul says in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, we're of all people most to be pitied. We may as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's the end of everything. We're still in our sins. Christ is a false Lord and Saviour. You need to look at the evidence. If you've been seeing the news this week, you'll see that the inquest into the death of Princess Naira and Dodi Fayed is drawing to a conclusion. And the judge in his summary has been pretty blunt, has he not? He says there is not a shred of evidence of any conspiracy or plot to murder this couple. In other words, he's seen all the witnesses, he's asked them what they've seen and heard, and there is no real evidence. But there is compelling evidence. There are convincing proofs that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And that is one reason why this period of 40 days was necessary, so they were convinced, and so that we can be also convinced based on the evidence that eyewitness evidence of those first disciples. That's the first reason, all right? The second one uh, is this. A second purpose. Clarification of the message of Jesus. Clarification of the message of Jesus. If you've ever studied at college, and many of you are students, you sign up, do you not, for various courses. And each course, has a, the lecturer gives a title to the course. All right? Um, I was recently asked if I would go and lecture at International Christian College in um, Glasgow, and I asked them, what do you want me to lecture on? And they said, we have a master's degree, an MTH, in expository preaching, and the subject we'd like you to speak on is, lecture on is, preaching from Old Testament narrative. That's the subject. I was not able to do it for reasons of time and probably competence as well, but um, if you want a title for what Jesus taught. A a subject title. What what was his message about? Here it is. The kingdom of God. In the Gospels, as you read the four Gospels, you'll discover that this this is the subject matter. This is the title, the summary of what he's talking about. The central message of Jesus, Mark 1. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. Uh, This was his central message. Many of the parables that he told, those wonderful stories, uh, were about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the related term, identical term. Now, as the story of Jesus draws to a close, it looks like this kingdom is finished. For the king is dead, crucified, buried. But now he is risen from the dead, And the message he entrusts to his disciples is the same subject matter. Look at verse 3. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. He said, we've got a six-week Bible school here. And this is the subject I'm going to speak to you about. The kingdom of God. And after receiving this instruction about the kingdom of God from the Son of God, the Master Teacher, his followers carry the same message beginning in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're going to see this in, in the book of Acts, God willing. So, here's Philip, the great evangelist, who actually seemed to have been a deacon, who was an evangelist. Challenge to all deacons. Um, Acts 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Uh, then the story goes beyond that, into Greece. Here's Paul in the great city of Ephesus, occult center of the ancient world. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about what? The kingdom of God. 
Acts 19, verse 8. And when we come to the end of the book of Acts, here's the very end of the book of Acts, the last verses. Here's Paul under house arrest in Rome, but with freedom to share and speak with people who come to him for two whole years. This is Acts 28, 30, 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to notice in these opening verses of Acts is this. If Jesus had not spent those 40 days with his disciples, with his apostles, they would either have been talking about the wrong subject... Or they'd have been talking about the right subject, the kingdom of God, but given the wrong subject content to the course. How do we know that? Because even after the resurrection of Jesus, even after this teaching, we discover that they are still confused about the kingdom of God. Acts 1 verse 6. They asked Jesus a question. So, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? this subject matter, to Israel. But Jesus just told them, of course, that in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was the promise through the ancient prophets that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit upon all people. And Peter picks that up in his speech in Acts chapter 2. So maybe they think, last days, end of the story. The promised restoration of Israel is just around the corner. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But they're badly mistaken, their question reveals. Calvin, John Calvin comments, there are as many errors in the question as words. If you, I'm going to be recommending some commentaries on uh, the book of Acts. If you want to, uh, one that's not too detailed but gives an overview very well is John Stott's uh, in the Bible Speaks Today series on Acts. You can get it from the bookstore, I expect, or certainly from Wesley Owen. Uh, and Stott comments about this question... The verb, the noun, and the adverb in this sentence all reveal confusion. Let me quote what he says. The verb restore shows that they're expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The noun Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time, that they're expecting its immediate establishment. And so they needed to be sure about the kingdom of God if they were going to preach about the kingdom of God. They needed to be corrected in their thinking. So we see these corrections about the kingdom of God. I'm picking up the three points that he makes here. Uh, you'll find in, in Stott's commentary. Uh, there are three things that are highlighted here. Corrections. First of all, the kingdom of God is spiritual in its character. If you think of kingdom, we usually think of a geographical area, territory like the United Kingdom. Or I lived for a time in the kingdom of Nepal. Uh, the apostles clearly identified the kingdom... If you said to them, kingdom of God, they immediately thought, yep, kingdom of Israel. Same thing. Jesus says, no, that is not the case. The kingdom of God is not identical to the kingdom of Israel or any other nation. Rather, the kingdom of God is God's rule in the lives of people who are called to submit to Jesus, who has now been declared by God to be king when he raised him from the dead. His enthronement is about to take place when he ascends into heaven. They'll be welcomed back in triumph. Um, if you want a nice little book that's easy to read on the book of Acts, it's actually two volumes of paperback. Uh, N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham, has written a little book called Acts for Everyone. And this is what he comments. The apostles are to go out as heralds, 
Not of someone who may become king at some point, but of the one who has already been appointed and enthroned. And using the same picture, uh, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, the witnesses to Jesus, they go out into the world as ambassadors for Christ. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you are not a Christian this morning, we call on you to abandon your rebellion against God, to lay down your arms and accept the wonderful peace terms that God offers. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who had no sin for us, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the message. You can be reconciled to God. The king reigns. This is a kingdom that is spiritual in its character. Uh, Linked in with that, it's a kingdom that is international in its membership. Yes, the gospel is first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. So citizenship in God's kingdom is not limited to those chosen people it was under the old covenant who belong to the nation of Israel. It's for all people from all nations. So in answer to this mistaken question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time, Jesus tells them, your focus shouldn't be on the end of the world, your focus needs to be on the ends of the earth. You'll receive power, here's our verse of the year again, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in a church like Charlotte Chapel, we are privileged to see that international diversity. We have people from all sorts of different nations worshipping with us. Reminds us that we are all one in Christ Jesus. We'll see God willing again in our series in Acts how hard it was for these first Christians to be absolutely convinced that the good news of Jesus was for people other than people born members of the nation of Israel. And so the third correction that follows from this that they needed to know about the kingdom of God was that it's gradual in its expansion. Notice what they actually asked. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now Jesus doesn't say he's not going to restore the kingdom to Israel at any time. Rather he says this is not the time of these special times and seasons. Times and dates. They're not known to God. Rather, you're to focus on being witnesses for Jesus in ever-expanding circles, beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is this wonderful picture of how remarkably against the odds, the early Christians carried the message out. The spreading flame, it went out from person to person, from place to place. The gospel torch was carried throughout the world to the ends of the earth till it ends up in Rome itself. And we are to follow in their footsteps in our generation. The kingdom of God is continuing to grow throughout the world today. Many years ago, frankly, I think it was 40 years ago, I joined Wycliffe Bible Translators as a missionary. And we used to sing a song regularly at that time. Some of the older ones will remember it. We don't sing it very often now. Probably it wasn't a great tune and certainly another classic. But the words of it express a truth. This is what we used to sing. Every person in every nation in each succeeding generation has the right to hear the news that Christ can save. And the last part of it ends with a personal commitment. Father, I am willing to dedicate to thee life and talent, time and money. Here am I. Send me. Now, I'm not too worried that we don't sing it. 
But I am concerned whether we have the same conviction, the same commitment today that every person in every nation, in each succeeding generation, has the right to hear the news that Christ can save, that he's died and he's risen from the grave and he calls them to repentance. And the early followers of Jesus had this conviction. That's why we're here today in Charlotte Chapel, why there's a building here, why, why, why we meet as a company of God's people for 200 years. Because people brought the good news to us and we have an obligation, a privilege of sharing the good news with others. So that's the second thing. Confirmation about the resurrection of Jesus. Clarification about the message of Jesus. Thirdly, continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Look again at the passage in front of us. Uh, Luke begins this sequel with a reminder about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Which he described in his gospel, in Luke, his first book. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, you can read this and think, Luke is saying, right, volume one, the Gospel of Luke, is all about what Jesus did. Now, here's my second volume, and this is all about what the apostles did. Uh, in fact, the, this book has been called The Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Luke doesn't give it a title. Those titles were added much later, between the 2nd and 4th centuries. There's no title to this. But it's clear that by his words, all that Jesus began to do and teach while he was on earth, Luke is actually going to describe in this second volume, all that Jesus continues to do and teach from heaven, through the apostles he has chosen, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the emphasis of his commission to them. The continuation of the ministry of Jesus. But you will receive power. We'll know this verse by the time we finish. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You'll represent me. You'll do the same kind of things I did. You'll do and teach what I did. You'll tell people about that. You'll witness to that. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he says, you'll be empowered by the Spirit to do that. Just like I was. Remember at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, way back in the beginning of Luke's gospel, we looked at it about a year ago, longer than that. Uh, Luke 3 says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you and well pleased. Now, notice the difference here. Hundreds, probably thousands, several thousand people were baptized in the River Jordan in water by John. The baptism of Jesus was unique because he was the only one who was baptized in water and in the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan. The other people who were baptized by John, including many of the twelve, at least some of them, were baptized in water but had not yet been baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. But now this is all about to change. And we'll see this as we come to Acts chapter 2. At the end of his great sermon, the people ask Peter, what should we do? And he says to them, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Gives them a command and a promise. Now you might think, oh, this is just like John did. Yeah, but there's a difference. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and 
for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. At Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. They baptized in water as a sign of repentance towards God. They received forgiveness in the name of Jesus. But at the same time, they were baptized in water to empower them to be witnesses for Jesus. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, like Jesus was, they continued their ministry as Jesus continued his. Of course, there are differences. But the fundamental reality is the same. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the American uh, pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, who's now believed with the Lord, has a commentary on Acts, and he writes, A witness is someone who knows something and testifies to it. In the case of the disciples, these men were to be witnesses to who Jesus was and what he had done. Above all, they were to be witnesses to the truth of the resurrection. They were to advance Christ's kingdom, not by coercion, but by testimony to the truth. And that is, of course, why they needed to be sure about the truth to be sure about the kingdom of God, to be sure about the resurrection of Jesus. That's why they needed to spend 40 days with Jesus. So the ministry of Jesus continues today through us if we claim to be his followers. But it raises two important questions. First of all, are we authentic witnesses about Jesus? Are we clear about the message of Jesus? Are we clear about what the gospel's about? Are we clear about what the kingdom of God is about? And secondly, are we convinced about the resurrection of Jesus? We've looked at the evidence and we're absolutely certain that Christ was raised bodily from the dead and therefore he's Lord of all. And secondly, even more challenging perhaps, or as challenging, leading on from that is, are we effective witnesses? Are we empowered by the same Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Now, the circumstances may be different. You come to faith these days in Christ. When you trust in him, God forgives you, you receive his spirit. And usually sometime after that, as soon as possible, I think, you should be baptized in water as a sign of that. Whatever our disagreements may be about that, the telling question is, are we empowered by the Holy Spirit? Are we powerful witnesses for Jesus, like these early disciples were? I think, in all honesty, many of us, including myself, feel our inadequacy. The problem lies not with God. His Holy Spirit is still the same. And the challenge we're going to see in the book of Acts is, we need to get out there with the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, almost finished, but we need to come to the final verses at the end of the chapter. We began by focusing on this 40-day period between the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and, and just imagine how surprising it must have been when Jesus suddenly appeared. Uh, but we've seen that these appearances didn't last forever. Uh, there came a day after 40 days when the 40-day mission was over. The Bible school had finished as Jesus ascended into heaven. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So after he was taken up from their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight, it's understandable that they stand looking up into the sky, wondering when the cloud disappears if he's going to reappear again, as he did once on another mountain in front of three of his disciples when a cloud hid him, on the Mount of Transfiguration perhaps. 
Luke records in verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. As on previous occasions, resurrection appearances, the two men in white are angels with a message from God. So here's the message from the men in white. They begin, first of all, with a rebuke. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's a gentle rebuke. What what are you doing that for? It's not appropriate. Wonderful quote again, regularly quoted from John Stott's commentary. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. We are called not to be stargazers, speculators about times and seasons. We are called to be witnesses to a needy world. Is that our vision? Is that our focus in Charlotte Chapel? It needs to be, for notice finally, the message from the men in white also contains an assurance. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him, go into heaven. One day Jesus will return again. And it will be as unexpected for most people as those resurrection appearances Jesus made in the period between his resurrection and ascension. I began by saying to you, What would it be like if Jesus continued to appear like this and suddenly appeared? What difference might it make to our meetings? Well, the reality is these final words of the angels is this. Suddenly, unexpectedly, personally, gloriously, visibly, every eye will see him. Jesus will appear a second time. And the question we need to ask ourselves is will we be surprised by sorrow or surprised by joy? Let's pray together.